We might begin by reminding ourselves that uh, Martin, who composed this opera, Giulietta, while he was living in Paris at the end of the 1930s in 1938. Uh, he was born, of course, originally in what is now the Czech Republic in December 1890 in the small bohemian town, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but I'm going to say Polichka. P-O-L-I-C-K-A. His father, as probably a number of you know, was the bell ringer and watchman for the town, uh, and he was also uh, the fire watcher for the village too. And he lived, and you can still go there, to in the, as it were, tower that was attached to the church. And it was there in that tower that was Martinu was actually born. His father would ring the bell, church bells for prayers and festifications. Uh, as I say, they lived in the small tower room of, the, of St. James's Church. At the age of 16, Martineau entered the Prague Conservatoire, but he left early to begin his professional life as a musician, as a violinist. And then, in 1923, he made his way to Paris, to France, to the city that was really reinventing classical music in some senses, or a version of Western classical music, under the influence, perhaps, of Stravinsky and his neoclassical period, but also that group of composers known as Les Six. It was also a city that was uh, in the process of embracing perhaps the most potent of the isms within cultural uh, activities in the 20th century, surrealism. Uh, uh, the belief that our real selves were to be found not in the conscious lives we led, which often were less uh, than we would wish to be, but in our dreams. And of course, the kind of guru here is Sigmund Freud, and the key text for surrealism becomes an important text in terms of what we're going to see and hear tonight uh, on the interpretation of dreams by Freud. In Paris, Martineau abandoned as a composer the kind of rather romantic style that he developed to this point and took lessons with a French composer that he admired called Albert Roussel. Julietta itself is based on the play Juliette ou La Clé des Songes, Juliette or The Key of Dreams, and it was written by the French writer Georges Neveu, who was himself deeply influenced by surrealism. The story, for those of you uh, who need reminding, is about Michel, who's inherited a small bookshop, uh, who's on a book-buying expedition one day when he hears a woman singing. And this woman has obsessed him ever since that first sort of brief street encounter. At last, one day, he finds his way back to the seaside town where he thinks he first heard this woman singing. She is, of course, Julietta, the title of the opera. None of the citizens, though, of this town remember anything at all about their past. And in a kind of collective fit of absence of mind, Michel finds himself elected to be the leader of the town. Uh, and eventually he does find Julietta. However, it's not clear, really, at this stage, whether she's real or whether she's simply an extension, a product of his imagination, a dream, if you like. Uh, in a while, they make their way uh, together into a forest, and in an angry moment, he's provoked into drawing his pistol, which he has as the leader of the town, a badge of his authority, into shooting her. But is she dead, or is she not? We're never quite certain. Later, at the end of the opera, at the central office of dreams, Michel is warned that if he does not wake up and escape the dream, he will be imprisoned forever in this dream world. What does he choose to do? Well, you're going to have to wait for about three and a half hours to find out what he eventually decides to do. What we would like to do is perhaps rather different. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a trio of guests tonight to explore this opera. And behind me, you can see uh, splendid still photographs taken from the production. We're going to see uh, David Jones's design, David Jones, the director, rather. Uh, our guests are Lisa Wilson, who's covering the role of Julietta, and Christopher White, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. And they're going to play music from the opera for us in a while. And also going to talk about aspects of their particular uh, role in it. Our third guest tonight is the conductor, Dr. Sharon Choi, who is director of music at the University of East Anglia and indeed a Martineau scholar and an editor of Martineau's work. Can I ask you then please to welcome Sharon Choi. Have a seat. Sharon, I'd like to begin by asking, I said that Martineau began his life as a professional violinist, and in fact he was playing, I think, with the Czech Philharmonic at the beginning of his career. Um, did he always intend to compose? Had he started composing quite early? Yes. Um, I'm glad you asked about his violin playing, because when he was small, um, and you have already explained about Polichka and all that, um, back in his own small town, 
his family and friends thought that um, he was going to be the next Jan Kubelik, oh. um, who was, of, of course, the great Czech uh, violinist at the time. So he was sent to Prague for that reason. Um, but it, it, is, it is very apparent that from, from the word go, what his, you say intention, but actually compulsion was to compose. And it is interesting that a very recent biography of Martineau uh, by F. James Ripker um, insinuates that Martineau um, was actually born with a kind of autism, ah. a sort of Asperger's disease that sort of compelled him to compose. Um, but when he was young, that was not kind of discovered in a very concrete way. So he, he was at first held to be a, a you know, a, a violinist, uh, but actually he failed most of the <laughs> exams at the academy and was dispelled from it. Um, oh, for, he was expelled for incorrigible negligence. <laughs> um, and then he, he wanted to, to remain in Prague, and so he um, uh, re-enrolled into the organ school, but only after two exams. And the examiners said that if there was a, a, a mark lower than zero, they would have given him that. Um, so I'm afraid Martin wasn't a very good student at all, and I think part of the reason was that he really wasn't a violinist. He was a composer. And um, by the time he eventually went to study with Josef Suk, he had already composed mm. over 100 works. Mm. Presumably in Prague, as a, as a young man, he's listening to an enormous amount of music. It's going to be very much the kind of standard late romantic repertoire. It's going to be Strauss, it's going to be Mahler, perhaps Bruckner, uh, it's going to be Dvorak. Is this the style that he begins to compose in, that kind of late 19th, early 20th century romantic style? Yes, um, I would say so. Particularly, I think, um, in, in, in Czechoslovakia at time, the, the, the education would have been very much that as, as a, a Czech, you, you follow the great tradition of Smetana and Dvorak, and, and, and of course Janoszak was still alive. Mm. Um, and Josef Suk, um, Dvorak's son-in-law, eventually became um, Martinu's teacher for a little while. So he, he was brought up with, with that sort of music. And as you mentioned, Strauss, Mahler and all that was being played by the Czech Philharmonic, of course. And, and Martinu played in it, um, second violin, third desk, by the way. Um, um, so <laughs> We're not going to make any comments so, about second violins, are we? <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, um, there, there were contemporary composers' music to be heard and to be played. And, and that was when uh, Martineau became fascinated by Debussy and, and particularly the French style of um, composing. So, of the sort of Czech models, Smetner and the living composers Suk and, 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 and Janáček, can you see them having a kind of distinctive impression on uh, uh, Martineau as a composer? I mean, Janáček won't by this stage be publicly known for, as the great opera composer we now think of because these works yes. are going to come later. But are these can you see fingerprints from these composers on Martineau's early work? Yes, I would say so. Not only his, his early works. I mean, whatever he says, I mean, he wanted to get away from the tradition, but, but actually, you know, he grew up in that tradition and it really was in his blood. And I don't think that he ever was able to get rid of that. And so you you will hear, I would say you will hear Dvorak in Julieta and um, the rhythms of Janáček. And it, and it is in, interesting, and of course Smetana as well, actually the operatic um, techniques, let's say, of Smetana. So, um, and, and, and there is a, this, um, in fact, incidence with Janáček when uh, the cunning little vixen was being um, produced in Prague and Martineau had just written his ballet, Who is the Most Powerful in the World, which is a story about mice. <laughs> and uh, so it is also, you know, with like Vixen, there's a lot of animals in the, in the production. And Janáček was very jealous that the rooster in Martineau's um, powerful, the ballet, had the best costumes, you know, <laughs> over and above his own little vixen. So, so that, that's a sort of uh, relationship they, they, they had and interchanges. Is, is it simply because he has discovered Debussy uh, as a young man 
that he goes to Paris in 1923, or are there other reasons why he goes to Paris? Um, well, the, the direct reason was that actually at, in 1923 he was already 33. I mean, in this, this and day, day and age, we, we don't think of 33 as very young mm -hmm. to go and study. But, but um, Martin actually got a scholarship to go to Paris to study for three months. It was given by the Czech government to him. And so um, with you know, his love of French music, he, he took, took that scholarship with you know, great, great glee. And, and um, in that same year, his father died. So in a way, he was sort of free of a lot of things. And he decided to make this trip to Paris, and he uh, sought out Albert Roussel, as, as you mentioned Whose music before. he had known before? He, he had known his music before. Mm -hmm. So with, with um, um, Debussy and, and a lot of other French composers as well. Um, so he went to Paris uh, initially for three months, because the sculpture was for three months, but what, what happened was that he, he stayed for 17 years. Um, so, so that was the primary reason why he went yeah. to Paris. Yeah. This is the Paris not only um, of Roussel, but mm. Lécisse, mm. Um, uh, uh, all sorts of kind of, you know, uh, nose-thumbing at traditions. And it's also the city of Stravinsky and Stravinsky's discovery of neoclassicism, his attempt to turn himself into a French composer. Um, do, do, these, do, you do, do, you get, do you see these influences emerging as ones that, 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 that Martin Lou takes account of? Yes, he certainly did. Um, he, well, the interesting thing is that although he was trying to escape from you know, the Czech and basically Germanic tradition of composing, when he arrived, Albert Roussel wasn't actually the quintessential, typical French impressionist, so to speak. In fact, Roussel was quite a, a symphonist. And so what Martin got from him, I think, and he acknowledged later in life, was a sense of um, composing with a, a sense of proportion mm. that uh, he, he felt he never had before. Mm. And so it, it wasn't, the, 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 the first thing wasn't the, all that, the, the break for, from um, the, the, the old tradition, but he was definitely very much in, influenced by uh, I would actually say the literary movements of the time, the Dadaism and the Surrealism and, and so on. And he, he in fact commented that he thought that music um, at the time, the, the direction it was going was a little bit undisciplined. Um, however, he loved Stravinsky. Stravinsky's uh, composition technique was something that he really respected. What was it he liked about Scusin? Was it this, this building um, uh, larger structures out of small little um, fragments? Was it the kind of architectural quality that, 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 that is part of Stravinsky which he liked, where there is a sort of sense of discipline attached hmm. to that? Yes, I think so. Uh, you can in, see in Stravinsky a, a kind of structure, hmm. whereas you know, very often I would say, you know, French Impressionism could be, you know, a bit wishy-washy, which, I mean, you, you, if you listen to Martineau, you might think the same, that his, his music is a little bit wishy-washy, um, especially, you know, like in Julieta, it's so dreamy, you know, literally. However, uh, there is actually a very, very strongly rooted structural you know, architecture in it, mm. which, which is what he admired in Stravinsky, but also, of course, the rhythmic, mm. the rhythmic, the new rhythmic quality mm. of Stravinsky's music, which is, was, was really a new invention. And uh, the, the first composition that um, Martineau wrote after he went to Paris was something called Half Time. It's a, a large-scale um, orchestral work, and it is all about football. <laughs> um, he loved football. Uh, Martineau had a really good sense of humor, and he, he drew cartoons uh, most of his life, and he actually draw, drew himself watching football. And so so halftime is all about football, it's, and it's it, it, you know, quite a riot. And, and in fact, when it was premiered in Prague, it caused a riot because some people thought that he plagiarized Stravinsky. 
and that, that, that there was um, you know, too much Petrushka in it. Mm. And in fact, he was taken to court for it. So that, that's the sort of um, respect Martineau had for Stravinsky. Presumably also in, in, in Paris, he must have heard jazz. I, I just remember to be personal, the first piece of Martineau I ever heard when I was a teenager was a wonderful early jazz suite, um, with, which was, seemed to be a kind of a, an almost unstoppable homage to syncopation. It was yeah. absolutely magic. And, and, and is, there, is, it, is it in Paris that he first finds jazz, or is it in Paris he recognises the possibilities of jazz and, and maybe even Gershwin and, and all of that as, as, as part of his compositional art? Um, the, the, the honest answer is that I really don't know when he discovered jazz. It's very likely that it's in Paris that, that he was able to immerse himself in, in that, that, that kind of atmosphere more than any, anywhere else. And the piece that I, I would use as, as a very good example is um, Le Revue de Cuisine, which I, I, it's, it's one of his most popular works. I don't know whether you, you know it. It's about... Um, uh, kitchen utensils. Do you know it? No. <laughs> and uh, it has some wonderful movements, a tango and, and various dances that are not, not just written in a jazz style or, or reference to jazz, but it's actual jazz. And it, it's, it's wonderful playing for a small ensemble. So, so jazz did infiltrate into his compositions a great deal in his Paris period. If there's one thing that threads through all of his music, um, uh, it seems to be it's the piano. Mm. It's either there in the middle of the orchestra, it's in the pit in the operas. What is it about the piano? I mean, is it the, the pleasure of the percussive quality of the piano? Does it have some personal significance for him? Yes. Um, I, I was just talking to Christopher White, who will perform to you later. I said, if Christopher asked me that question, I, I can talk about for about three hours on this. Um, As they say on Mastermind, because, you have one minute. Okay. Um, the, the, the piano is, is a very special thing for Martin, and ironically, it's because he could not play it. Um, when, when he was a student... He, um, you know, when, when he, he failed all these exams at the academy, and Josef Suk actually recommended that he, he, he re-audition for the organ school. And one of the first things Suk said to him was, don't play the piano. Because if you played the piano, you wouldn't get in. But, but he did play the piano, and he didn't get in. So he had to try again. So, so the piano was almost like an obsession for Martineau. And, and again, with, with one of the very famous cartoons, he had, had the piano. He, it's called Battling with the Piano. He had the piano looking like a, a dragon, you know, uh, trying to subsume him or something. So, but, but the piano became something really, really special musically, and he used it almost obsessionally in, in a lot of his orchestral works, large scale and small scale. And he has also written a lot of uh, solo piano music. And in Giulietta, the piano is used in a very mm. special way. And I think the piano for him um, has some romantic connotation. Mm. Uh, but in terms of music, when you hear it in, within the orchestral texture, it's, it's unlike any mm. use of the piano by any other con composer, because he, he uses it uh, as a, really a, an orchestral instrument, so that it merges with what, whatever other orchestral in instrument that's being played, and it's, it's actually a very challenging thing to do mm. as a pianist within, within the orchestral ensemble. I'm, I'm sure we'll come back yeah. to what I now think of as kind of, I just have to think of as the, the dragon in Martinou's front room, or as opposed to the elephant, um, when we talk again in a while later. Sharon Shaw, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> stay with us, stay with us. Uh, we're joined now, ladies and gentlemen, by Christopher White, who, as I've said, is a member of the English National Opera Music Staff, and by Lisa Wilson, uh, who covers the role of Julietta in this production. Will you please welcome Christopher White and Lisa Wilson? <laughs> And Christopher and Lisa are going to perform two pieces or two little sequences of music from what we're to hear tonight. Lisa, what are you going to do first? First of all, this is a little section from Act One, and um, it doesn't need much explanation because it's the first time they meet. Uh, you may find Chris has very kindly agreed to sing in the little bits that Michelle sings. There aren't very many of them, but um, it's to help me with the whole conversation because she doesn't really have any full-on arias. So um, this is a tiny, weeny little bit of conversation moment from Act One. 
This time you are not to go away. Promise me. That doesn't matter. All that really matters is that you're back, that you came back. Tell me what you like. Tell me anything, anything. Keep on talking. Just keep talking. Keep on talking. Anything, anything. I'll just keep quiet and listen to you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, as you've been working and thinking about the role, who is the Julietta you think you've discovered? Oh, well, um, she, she's two people, really. She's the, the person he first saw, and um, in this production we've been talking about the fact that he first saw her when he was awake, um, singing in a high window. And that little bit I sang at the beginning is actually off stage, the little unaccompanied section. And um, this woman that he met then becomes his ideal woman. And he um, goes back in, in his dream and he comes to this strange village uh, where he tells everyone about uh, this woman that he's come back to try and find. And she starts singing and, and here she is. So um, through most of the opera, she is part of his dream. She's a dream character in his head, created by him of his ideal woman. And does that pose difficulties for the singing well, <laughs> actress to be both real in a window yes. um, and then to become a dream? Uh, yes, yes, obviously it does, because um, she is created by his head, his ideas, his, his experiences, obviously, that have come to play in his dream. So to create a, a character for her so that I can play someone in someone else's dream obviously has, has some difficulties. If you can think of times uh, you've had very, very vivid dreams, um, I, as Julietta, am one of those, si a very important side character in that dream. Um, so obviously there are moments of um, perhaps illogical behaviour or perhaps moments where she doesn't react where you might think someone would react if that thing happened to them in real life. Um, and the, the challenges have been to try and make a character for, for myself that I can easily and naturally play whilst maintaining this dreamlike world that, that continues around. Yeah. Does she develop as a character? She, she sort of coalesces, I think. <laughs> Um, so she starts fairly, she, she's like a sort of newborn thing. She, she comes out of this door and she sees him and everything's very exciting. But she needs him to tell her where she comes from, um, what, what happened to them in the past, wh where they met, what her own history is. Because after all, she's a member of this village where no one has any memories. So like them, she's desperate to get memories, to build a life for herself. And as you'll see in Act 2, she finds, she, she gets sort of, given these memories by him, he tells her what happened. And um, she begins to take on her own identity and actually becomes slightly independent of him towards the end of Act Two and doesn't necessarily do the things that he would necessarily want her to do. But she's still in his dream. She's still in his dream. But then, as you know, in dreams, very often things don't turn out the way you hope they want to. <laughs> what, are, what are the challenges for you of the, of the music that Martin writes for you? Well, personally for me... Um, I found he's, he's very, very strong rhythmically, but to actually remember precisely which rhythms he's actually written for that little bit, I found quite difficult. My score has every single beat basically written in so that I can remember. But also, I think um, 
musically, the, the shift in chromaticisms can make it very, very difficult for you to actually find your starting note, to be completely anchored in where you are. And um, when you listen to it tonight, I, I, I hope you won't notice any of those difficulties because when you listen to it, it makes perfect and complete total sense. But to find your little bit of line mm. in the middle of all that can be quite tricky. That suggests that the voice almost exists as part of the overall... I'm going to use the wrong word because I can't think of another way of putting it, of the kind of orchestral texture of the whole piece. That although there are characters here, mm -hmm. that they are, as we hear them, part of the complete sound world. They're not characters supported by music. Yeah, I would 100% I would agree with that. I mean, I was talking to Chris earlier. Actually, it's, in a way, it's much easier to sing it with the orchestra because the colours are created around the voice. When you have the piano, you miss half of that. And so you're finding your way. It's much more difficult, basically, to find your way. So, yeah, I would 100% I would agree. It feels so much better to hear the orchestral sound and to be meandering as part of that overall sound. We're now going to make it difficult for you all over again, because <laughs> you and Christopher are going to perform another little sequence. Tell yeah. us a bit about what you're going to do now for us. There's two um, short sections here. They're both from Act Two. And the first section is uh, the first time they meet again in Act Two. So towards the end of Act One, uh, Julietta disappears off into a house and tells Michelle to follow the instructions on a little map she gives him and that they will meet in the forest later on. So the first section is when they finally meet again in the forest. And the second section happens quite shortly after that. This strange man appears from out of a wardrobe and he is a memory dealer. And uh, Julietta is very excited about this because she, she feels she can finally create some or, or find some memories for herself. Um, however, she invents this wonderful world created by the pictures that the memory, the photographs that the memory dealer gives her, but they are completely untrue. And Michelle stops her and says, no, 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 this is, this is not correct. But the little excerpt I'm going to sing you is one where she has quite a long monologue uh, about um, these pictures that are she's creating memories from as she looks at them. Great. Thank you very much. Here is the river where you took me rowing. Can 
Thank you very much. A wonderfully convincing account of that time in Spain. <laughs> Christopher, um, you're going to play the piano, I think, in, 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 within the orchestra tonight. Um, I can't resist slightly changing what we might thought to ask you, picking on Sharon's well. What do you think the piano means for Martinou uh, in, in this piece and perhaps his music generally? Yeah, well, the piano... In, in this piece, certainly, it's like almost the consciousness, the subconsciousness going through the entire thing. As I was saying to Sharon earlier, technically, what's very difficult is that you have to combine with every orchestral section at, uh, at different points in the piece. Um, which means, you're, you know, you're playing more or less, I wouldn't say non-stop exactly, but it's, you know, it's, very, it's 100 pages long, my part, which is uh, uh, it's the longest orchestral piano part I've ever seen, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, so anyway, when you're combining with strings, you know, the uh, quality of attack is completely different and the, and the sort of gestures are completely different from when you're working alongside the brass. Uh, another difficulty with the brass is that they're about 100 feet that way, you know, and so you have to rely entirely on, on the beat, which in this case is uh, extremely clear and fine, but uh, it's not always the case. And then what is uh, an, an added bonus is um, to play on my own. Um, so that big flourish uh, just before the first section uh, is actually a piano cadenza, which I play uh, at stage level, just out in the wings. Um, and that gives, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very nice chance for me, but it also completely changes the focus, makes, mm. makes it much more intimate, I think. Um, but the challenge there is the kind of stage whisper, you know, sort of stage intimacy, because you're, you, you're off there, and a lot of the sound is getting swallowed up in the cavernous spaces behind the stage. Um, and uh, yet you have to project this idea that essentially Julia, uh, Julietta mimes uh, playing the piano in, in, in the second act. And uh, to create and that Martin kind of... Does Martin specify that the, the opening, that this, this cadenza-like yeah. passage should be played off stage and the remainder should be played in the pit? No, it's all, um, it's all one orchestral piano part. So that's a decision that's been arrived at uh, through um, uh, Ed Gardner and Richard mm. Jones, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, the way it's staged is very clever because Michelle is, is, is having the memory and, and when, when these chords come in, um, he plays air piano, so to speak, so he, he, kind, of, he kind of does this. And of course, I can't see that, so I'm reliant on a monitor uh, with, the, with the conductor um, beating that out. You know? um, so that's really fun. And then um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what happens between myself and Julietta when, when Julietta is, is my way along because it's quite an involved long scene it's, it's like I'm playing a sh it has to me it has the air of a kind of Schubert uh, Momo Musical uh, Momo Musical or, or something like that um, but through this prism of French and Czech and surrealist I mean it's absolutely incredibly imaginative you've been working with the singers in the course of the production too obviously I think I have a bit, yes. And I wonder, picking on what Lisa was saying about, about the, vocal, the vocal lines difficulties mm. and, and clutching for rhythm, as you know, as you're kind of, but the change, what, what, what have you been able to, to do to help the singers through? Well, I, it's, it's no guarantee that I have to start that, <laughs> but uh, what I hope to have done, um, you have to always give anchor points in a piece like this. I mean, if, if you're doing an opera which is 200 years older, then, then you know, it, it's much more... Uh, segmented and, and, and regimented but this of course because it does have this quality of this very uneasy 
uh, dream. And it's also, it's the kind, you might agree, the, the kind of dream that you can't get out of. So you, you know you're dreaming, and you, then you know you can't get out of it, and that's a particularly frightening type of And um, imagine performing that, you know. Uh, so um, it's a question of finding, finding anchor points. And um, when music does return, which it actually doesn't that often, he's an incredibly eclectic, imaginative composer who chucks a huge amount of melodic and rhythmic invention at the piece. Um, and not much of it sticks, as it were. So it, it, uh, there, are, there are bits which comes back. And actually, uh, Julietta, the character Julietta, because she is a cipher, because she is in somebody's imagination, has most of the uh, recurring music. Anyway, when that's not the case, um, you, you have to find, you have to find uh, strategies, basically, for coping with it. The other thing, of course, is the Czech, translating it out of the Czech, where you have a lot of um, what you might, for want of a better word, call patter. Um, and you have to make that sound convincingly English. It's very easy for that not to be the case, because stresses in Czech tend to be in different places. Um, one particular one I can think of is when he's being elected commander of the city. The word is kapitanem. Um, and he stresses it two different ways. So he goes kapitanem sometimes, and then kapitanem which I assume is acceptable in Czech language. I'm afraid I don't speak Czech. Uh, but then you have to find all sorts of strategies to get around that with the translation. The translation is excellent, by the way, but you, you, you always have to uh, make sure it sounds as natural as possible. Does, does, does Martinu characterise his characters musically uh, in, in the way that we come to expect in, in 19th, late 19th, early 20th century opera? It's a really good question. I've been, I was thinking about that today. Um, I think... So let's take the character of, of, of Michel. He's somebody to whom things happen. Although he sings an awful lot and it's an extremely intense and punishing tenor role, the music kind of happens to him because he can't keep track, he can't um, get, a, get a grasp on anything that, 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 that goes on because it all goes by so quickly. And, and, and you'll see you know, men come out of cupboards and, and the commissar turns into the, the postman and... Um, uh, Andrew Shaw does a hilarious jig at the beginning of his role for no reason I, that I can think of. Um, so uh, in terms of characterization, it sort of comes from the other direction. Um, so it's not that you have a character who imposes their character, musically speaking. Uh, I think it comes much more from, from the musical fabric, from the orchestra, essentially. With the exception being Julietta, but then again, she's not a character, she's a figment of someone else's imagination. So it's, uh, it owes a lot to Freud and... and, 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 and people like that, that. That takes me neatly and elegantly back to you, Sharon. Um, do stay with us, Christopher and Lisa, and I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience at the end. Um, can you think of, 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 of an obvious reason why Nevers play, uh, Juliet or the Key of Dreams, to give it the English translation, would have appealed to Martin? I mean, is, is, are, we, are we finding him a kind of fully uh, subscribed member of the Surrealists at this point in 1938? Actually, I wouldn't say that, but although um, but Martineau wrote 15 operas, um, or 16 if you count the two versions of Greek Passion as uh, two Tiburon operas, uh, and seven of them uh, have a surrealist theme. However, I think that, um, what I want to clarify is that the libretto is surreal, but the music is not. And uh, I think what captured Martinu's imagination was really that this idea of, you know, not knowing whether you are in reality or in a dream world was very much how he naturally was. And um, going back to what Christopher was saying, he was, um, grew up in this church tower uh, he actually him, he himself acknowledged later in life that that had a, a real effect on him and on his, his um, composition of music, because you know high up in the tower he grew up I think in the first seven years of his life looking at the world as something remote, something not very real, and this seemed to have stayed with him all his life. And when he he actually uh, read uh, met Never and uh, reread his play, it, it seems like it sort of caught fire. Suddenly something in him really came out in a, in a really expressive way. And I, I would like to actually read, um, read you a quote from uh, Never. And that is when uh, Never, uh, Martineau told Never that he had already set his act one, uh, act one of his play to music. And, and Nevers was quite, um, was excited, but was also disappointed because at the time he, he had already promised Court Vile the play for him to set it as a musical comedy. 
So he had already talked to, to Kotwal's agent. And we should remind ourselves that Val, um, of course, is also in exile in Paris at this very same yeah, time too, exactly. on his way to where Martin will eventually go, New York, to America. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I find this quote very moving. I'd like to, to um, uh, uh, read it to you. It's, it's never reminiscing the occasion when he went to Martineau's house and heard the music. So I, I quote, At midnight... I descended the stairs of Martineau's home, deeply distressed. For the first time in my life, I had really entered the universe of Giulietta, of which my play presented but a glimpse. Martineau evidently liked Giulietta, but he so much surpassed the play in grace and profoundness, making from it such a musical masterpiece that I was quite dazzled. The next day, I wrote to Kurt Weill's agent that it was a misunderstanding and that my play was not free, unquote. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. That kind of, you know, enthusiasm for, 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 not always the case with the, the originator of, of, of an opera. I mean, um, this piece is being written at a time before, admittedly, the Munich uh, crisis, but it's being written at a time when, um, it, certainly in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, uh, fascism is on the rise, Martineau is detached. This is a period of, of, in which he must begin to sense, as many did, uh, what the, the likely outcome of, of, of events. Do you sense any of the politics of the late 1930s uh, in this piece at all? Do you know, um, <clears throat> when I listened to this piece for the first time, my, my naive ears um, didn't pick up on any of this at all. And actually now, being less naive, <laughs> I, I still think that Martineau didn't think of that when he was writing the music, because it was so personal, actually, to him. However, of course, in the 1930s, Paris was already you know, going through a lot of changes. And, and in fact, in, in some of Martineau's uh, autobiographical sketches and so on, he, he was saying that you know, he was feeling the disintegration of society already at the time, and um, that at the, the, the onset of the war, he escaped Paris, of course, and he had to do so um, secretly because the Nazis were uh, at him. He, he, they wanted him to go back to Czechoslovakia, and he refused. So he was actually on the run, more or less, and he was on the run for about six months before he eventually uh, went through southern France to um, Spain, to Portugal, and to America. So he was kind of blacklisted by the Nazis. But this kind of escape, I do not feel in, in the music of Giulietta. It, it may be actually more in Nevers' um, text in, in his play, but not in Martineau's music, is, is my point of view. It's this idea that the loss of memory, mm. or the deliberate um, removal of memory, um, bears a kind of um, a, a close relationship to what we know from Soviet and from Nazi history, the airbrushing out of existence of, of the past when it becomes ideologically inconvenient. Um, an eternal present tense, you know, uh, two yes. legs um, uh, good, four legs bad. It's that mm -hmm. sort of... But you don't sense any of that at all in the piece. Well, I, I think that there is that, but it, for, for Martineau, it's actually something real and, and, in a way, a little bit more positive, I feel, than something dark like that. And um, I, I can actually read you a small quote uh, again that Martineau said um, later when he was in America, he said that, I thought I was experiencing whole scenes from my opera, opera Giulietta. What was truth and reality five minutes ago was no longer true after this time had relapsed. So he actually sort of felt that that's what we all live through. Of course, although it was during those difficult times, it's almost like somebody um, you know, promising you you'll have a visa to America and the next moment that's not true. I think he was referring to that as well. But in, in, in the reality of things, it seems that he went through life just knowing that that's what life is about. It's not exactly re re uh, loss of memory, but in fact, we, we do live like that every day. <laughs> David Jones' production, which we've been looking yeah. at, some of us, yeah, and here's a wonderful example, is wonderfully constructed <coughs> around the notion of the accordion. Indeed, the whole production appears to be uh, set within or around the accordion. Now, the accordion is the other instrument. We've not talked about it. What's the importance of the accordion 
in this piece? Well, the accordion is frightfully important, and, and that's therefore I think that Richard Jones has actually used it as um, the primary thing in, in his set. Um, it, it is played by the man at the window, isn't it? Yes. And, and uh, maybe it's, it's useful to say that, except for Juliette and, and Michelle, no one else has a name in this opera. Mm. So everyone else is just a role. Mm. And so the man at the, um, at the window plays the accordion. Whenever the accordion is played... We can, see him, up, we can see him up there in the, yes, in the image. The there window. he is. <laughs> then, then, then his memory comes back. So at the sound of the accordion... It, that brings back memory, and, but not, not all. And, and the people who can hear the accordion also, they, they will start to remember. But there are also some, some of the characters would run away from the accordion. They don't want to hear it because they don't want to remember the past. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very, very profound um, symbolic um, sound in this opera. Ladies and gentlemen, an opportunity for you to ask um, our three guests questions. There's a, the roving microphone. Put your hand up and catch my eye, and I will direct the microphone. Who would like to begin? Yes, sir. Question mic on its way. Yes, you, you were saying about the, 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 the piano part. I can't remember who was talking about the, the piano part itself. Can I, can I ask what the piano part is like? Is it a pianistic part, or was it, is it the opposite? Martineau wanting to... Um, wanting to be a pianist. Um. Yes, it, it's pianistic when it wants to be. I think it's the best way of saying it. Um, as I was saying to you, a, a, a lot of the issues connected with uh, linking in with a certain section in terms of how you attack, how you um, get from one note to another, actually, that, th those are the biggest challenges, really, for me, which is... It's not to say it's, it's, it's unpianistic, but, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's really an orchestral instrument in a way that orchestral piano in other symphonic music might be an add-on or a novelty or a, a new sound, this is not that. It's much more integrated. Another question. Yes, in the back row. Microphone on its way. Anybody who cares to answer it. I'm intrigued by the idea of rhythm, it, um, the jazz influence, but also the rhythm of the Czech language. Is there a kind of melange in this, or, or what? Sharon, I think the, the question, for those who may not have heard, was, was, was about rhythm uh, and whether one could look at a kind of melange, a mixture of, of interesting rhythm that might come from the Czech language itself um, and indeed from jazz. Well, a, a lot of Martin's music is very syncopated, you know, whether in, in uh, vocal music or not. And I think some people think, um, think that it is originated from Moravian folk songs is one thing. Um, and I think jazz has, has an influence. With this opera, I'm, I'm interested in what you say about the Czech translation because it, it, the, the opera was premiered in Prague. So the first libretto was written in Czech and it was translated from, uh, from Nevers' French text by Martineau himself. But then, actually at his deathbed, he translated back to the original uh, Nevers' text, inserted the French text. And I believe that uh, David Pauny's well, I think he used both the Czech, the Czech version to do the translation, but there is also the music is the version that... Um, it's the French version, the latest French version, that was only found in 2002. And the edition used is uh, the director of the Martineau Institute, Alish Brezina's edition. So um, I, I'm not, not, the later part is I'm not answering your question, but, but there is, yes, I mean, there's something to do with Czech language in the sense that, it, that firstly, it was written for the Czech language. Um, but uh, Martinu is not like Janacek that uses a lot of speech rhythm. Uh, and, and I think the syncopation comes more from the original folk melodies, the Moravian folk melodies, and so on. Another question. <coughs> Do we have another question? Yes, in the back row. I was just interested in um, asking, singing, what were the rewards of playing Giulietta? Because you talked about the challenges and mm -hmm. it sounded incredibly difficult. And you said there weren't too many arias, but what, what pleasure did it give you? Well, I think 
I have very much enjoyed um, inhabiting this this dream world. She she's she's very effervescent, and she doesn't come with a whole load of baggage because she's only just basically been created. It's like she's just been born. Um, so most of her music is very joyful, very happy. There's a, the, the section in, in Act Two where, she, where, where everything changes for her. But um, I think for, for the majority of, of the opera, she's, she's, well, yeah, effervescent. She's really alive and she's enjoying every minute of being alive. And I think she's, she's loving the experience of, of feeling these emotions and, and um, connecting with this man. So I think, I mean, I very much enjoyed playing someone who, who, is, who is so alive and so happy. Um, and then, of course, when, when, when the big change comes, then, then you get your, your, your dramatic moment, so you can sort of do your dramatic um, side of things. But uh, I think also to be... To be a, a character, I mean, you'll see tonight that the moment Julietta is on stage, it, it, your, your eye is drawn to her. Um, <laughs> you, you can really see it, can't you? I mean, that wonderful red wig, which I'd love to wear. Um, <laughs> and, and I think to, 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 be, to, to play a character that is so attractive is, is um, well, it, it's lovely. I mean, it takes you out of real life and onto you know. Lisa, I'm sure we're all hoping you will get a chance to wear the, the red wig, but we'll, we'll keep that to ourselves. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you to all of you for being here this evening. It makes you a splendid, patient, quiet, and attentive audience. And a special thanks, of course, always to our three guests. Lisa Wilson, Christopher White, and Sharon Choi. Thank you all very much. <laughs>